There. Welcome to our Soul Food Broadcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. 17, if you can, please stand when you get that. <clears throat> First Samuel chapter 17, and go down to verse 17. If you're new to Calvary Chapel, we go verse by verse of the Bible from Genesis to Revelations find ourselves in 1 Samuel this morning. 1 Samuel 17, 17. And Jesse said to his son David, Take now for your brothers an ephah, this dried grain, these ten loaves, and run to your brothers at the camp, and carry these ten cheeses to the captain of their thousand, and see how your brothers fare, and bring back news of them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. So David rose early in the morning, left the sheep with the keeper, and took the things and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the camp as the army was going out to fight and shouting for the battle. For Israel and the Philistines had drawn up in battle array, army against army. And David left his supplies in the hand of the supply keeper, ran to the army, and kept, and, I'm sorry, and came and greeted his brothers. Then as he talked with them, there was a champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, coming up from the armies of the Philistines, and he spoke according to the same words. So David heard them, and all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. So the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And it shall be that the man who kills him, the king will enrich with great riches, will give him his daughter, and give his father's house exemption from taxes in Israel. And David spoke to the man who stood by him, saying, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine? that he should defy the armies of the living God. And the people answered him in this manner, saying, So shall it be for who is done for the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was aroused against David, and he said, Why do you come down here? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your pride and the insolence of your heart. You have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Is there not a cause? Then he turned from him toward another and said the same thing. And the people answered him as the first ones did. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We pray, Lord, that we'd have fertile hearts to hear, that you would take your word and by your Holy Spirit allow it to make a difference in our lives and let us leave a little bit more like Christ than when we came in here. We ask in your name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Several years ago, Walter took his good friend Arthur, who was paying him a visit, to see some real estate property that Walter had just bought. The two drove and drove for miles, and they drove off the main highway and down a small gravel road through a grove of fruit trees and then onto a large, uninhabited piece of land. A few horses were grazing here and there along the way, along with a few head of cattle. 
They could see the remains of a couple of old shacks. Walter stopped the car, got out, and was followed by Arthur. Walter began to describe with great enthusiasm and vividness the wonderful things he wanted to build. He went on at great length and in extreme detail painting word pictures. He was excited, and he was enthused. Then he turned to his good friend Arthur and invited him to buy the surrounding property. But Arthur would later admit he was thinking to himself, who in the world is going to drive 25 miles for this crazy project? The logistics of it are staggering. Walter went on to explain to his friend Arthur, I can handle the main project myself, but it is going to take all of my money. In just a couple of years, though, the land bordering it, where we are standing right now, will be jammed with hotels, restaurants, and convention halls to accommodate the people who will come to spend their entire vacation at my park. He continued, I want you to be the first to have a chance at the surrounding acreage because in the next five years it is going to increase in value several hundred times. What could I say? I knew he was wrong, Arthur said when telling the story later. I knew that his dream had got the best of his common sense. So I mumbled something about a tight money situation, and I promised I would look into the whole thing a little bit later on. A little longer will be too late, Walter cautioned Arthur as he walked back to the car. You better move on it right now. Today, that barren wasteland in Orange County, California, is worth several billion dollars. But Walter's friend, radio and TV personality Art Linkletter, cannot see the potential and turned down the opportunity to buy the acres and acres of land that now surround Disneyland, the dream of his friend, Walter Disney. How would you feel if you were Mr. Linkletter? And while doors of opportunity of that size come along rarely, if ever, to people like us, there are many other smaller doors of opportunity that are presented to us on a daily basis. God constantly invites us to trust him and experience ever-expanding dimensions of his faithfulness and his blessing. But far too often, we are like the hesitant link letter. We hang back, not sure of what we're supposed to do, or we walk away from the open door altogether. We allow fear and feeble faith to quench the fire passion of a product, a project, or a plan that God has put into our hearts. And so Art Linkletter, Linkletter turned down the opportunity to buy the land that surrounded what was to become Disneyland. His friend Walt Disney tried to convince him, but Art thought him crazy. Today we're going to see just the opposite. David is going to be presented with a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, but instead of fear, he chose faith. Look at verse 17 with me. And Jesse said to his son David, Take now for your brothers an ephah this dried grain and these ten loaves, and run to your brothers at the camp, and carry these ten cheeses to the captain of their thousand, and see how your brothers fare, and bring back news of them. God is the God of the unexpected. While he is all-powerful, and there is no power in creation that comes close to matching his power, his power is made perfect in weakness, 
as the Apostle Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 12.9. And if you've been with us, we've already seen this in the book of 1 Samuel. The book opened, you may remember, in circumstances of a grave national crisis for Israel, days of anarchy and instability, corrupt and ineffective leadership, and despair. The opening scene, however, took us to an obscure part of the country, to an unknown family and the distress of a childless woman. This was not exactly the place you would expect to see the answer to Israel's troubles to emerge. In a similar way, our second installment in the story of David and Goliath will also take an unexpected turn. From the Valley of Elah, from the terror and excitement, we are suddenly taken about 12 miles to the east, to the hills of Judah, to a little town called Bethlehem. And even as we are intimidated by whatever threatens us, we are called to put our trust in the God of the unexpected. God can be trusted, but he will sometimes act in ways that take us completely by surprise. Who would think that the massive problems of the world and the troubles of human life would have their ultimate solution in the execution of a man in AD 33 outside of Jerusalem? God is the God of the unexpected. Do you believe that this morning? Or do you still think that power and wealth and cleverness can save us from our problems? Back to our story. Until, unlike today's military, often back then, it was up to your family to help provide the food that you needed. And I think it's fascinating that both David and Jesus were both sent by their fathers. David was sent to bring his brother's bread, and Jesus to be the bread of life for the brotherhood of mankind. It's an Old Testament picture of the great shepherd who would come and pay the debt for all of us. Now, admittedly, in the scheme of things, it was a menial and trivial task. The details here underscore the commonplaceness and the unremarkable character of both David's family and the errand on which he was about to embark. Verse 19 now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah, fighting with the Philistines. So David rose early in the morning, left the sheep with the keeper, and took the things and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the camp as the army was going out to fight and shouting for the battle. Actually, Jesse just thinks they are fighting. What they're really doing is yelling at each other across the ravine, kind of like them WWF wrestling clowns, or wrestling, if you're really into it. I love that it says that David rose early, which speaks to his resolution to obedience. All of this was how David experienced the first part of his day, as an obedient son doing what his father told him to do. Now, the last time, if you remember, we heard about a trivial-sounding errand performed by a son in obedience to his father, it was when Saul set out in search of donkeys back in 1 Samuel 9.3. And that rather ordinary task resulted in the appointment of a king. Perhaps, hopefully, we have learned by now that very ordinary situations can be the beginning of extraordinary things in our lives. Verse 21, please. For Israel and the Philistines had drawn up in battle array, army against army. 
And David left his supplies in the hand of the supply keeper, ran to the army, and came and greeted his brothers. Then as he talked with them, there was a champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, coming up from the armies of the Philistines. And he spoke according to the same words, so David heard them. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. If David had rushed to the battle lines hoping to see some battle, he was in for a big surprise. The Philistine menace now repeated his twice-daily tirade of, Send me a man down to fight with me. Now, we also know that Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, and he defeated him by using the word of God. But let's not forget the rest of that account. We are told that after his defeat, Satan left Christ for an opportune time. Nothing has changed, has it? Our enemy will always be looking for an opportune time in our lives when our guard is down so he can aggressively once again attack us. Francis Thompson said, The devil doesn't know how to sing. He only knows how to howl. Now, of course, the Goliath that we face doesn't carry a sword or a shield. Instead, he brandishes the blades of unemployment, abandonment, sexual abuse, or depression. Your giant doesn't parade up and down the hills of Elah. Instead, he prances through your office, your living room, and your classroom. He brings bills you can't pay, grades you can't make, people you can't please, alcohol you can't refuse, pornography you can't resist, a career you can't escape, a past you can't shake, and a future you can't face. We all know, well, the roar of Goliath. Notice it says that in verse 23 that Goliath has come up. Now in verse 8, Goliath said, send a man down to me to fight. Well, that wasn't going to happen. So now we see Goliath has taken the initiative and is coming up to them instead. Do you know what that tells me? Giants won't go away just because we ignore them. There are giants in our lives that we must eventually deal with. For if we don't, not only will they not go away, they will begin to stalk us and encroach upon us places in our life that only God has the right to. Verse 24 says, And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. If you can imagine that scene this morning in verse 24, as David is standing there, all the men of Israel are running past him like scared little girls. But all David can see is this giant, and all he can hear are these taunts, and a holy and righteous anger begins to boil within him. And now David stands transfixed. In the Civil War during a retreat, one of the soldiers pointed out and said, Look at General Jackson. He is standing there like a stone wall, which of course stuck as he was henceforth known as Stonewall Jackson. 
in the same way they talked of the soldiers of North Carolina who would stick to the battlefront like they had tar on their heels, which, by the way, eventually evolved into a great college basketball team. That was for you, Kelsey. Verse 25, please. So the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And it shall be that the man who kills him, the king will enrich him with great riches, will give him his daughter, and give his father's house exemption from taxes in Israel. Then David spoke to the men who stood by him, saying, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away this reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in this manner, saying, So shall it be done for the man who kills him. Before we hear David's response to what he had seen and heard, we hear what Saul had done to counter the threat of Goliath. Had he decided to face the giant by himself? Well, no, not exactly. Had he drawn up a battle plan, and would he lead his troops out to deal with the aggressors? Once again, not exactly. And really, we know that Saul should have been the one to fight Goliath, as the Bible tells us he was a head taller than the rest of the men in Israel. But instead, Saul offers a reward. To the person who defeats Goliath, he promises to make their family tax-free and also the hand of his daughter in marriage. The reward promised to the one who slew Goliath would then be great riches, a bride, and freedom for his family. So basically, the reward was riches, a bride, and freedom. Does that remind you of anyone else? Why did the son of David, Jesus Christ, gain by defeating Satan? We are his treasure, Matthew 13, 44. We are his bride, Revelations 21, 9. And we are the ones who have been set free, John 8, 36. Now, these are the first recorded words spoken by David in the entire Bible, and he simply asked two questions. The first one was to clarify a rumor. What is the reward for the man who puts an end to this mockery? And the second was a rhetorical defiance of the Philistine arrogance. Verse 26 tells us that in David's eyes, not only is is Goliath defying Israel, he is defying God himself. And this is the first mention of God by anyone in the entirety of this account. Up to this point, God has been left completely out of the arena until David interjects him right here. And if we're going to achieve any rate of victory, we also are going to have to fight for it. There are some things in life we are never going to overcome unless there is some fight in us. And oftentimes, the force of the enemy's attack can overwhelm us like waves in the ocean of a storm. The waves come in rapid succession, one after another. And as soon as you think you can get up, here comes another wave. And soon you can begin to hear this voice in your head. Here comes another wave. Life is the same way. One wave of struggle ends, and here comes another one. And the enemy will begin to taunt you to try to convince you that you will never stand, that you will never overcome, and that you will never get out. 
And soon it brings you into a cycle of defeat. The thing is, though, I think there are some people who are defeated by the intimidation of the battle and not the engagement in the battle. That's what was defeating Israel right here. Goliath had got into their head and into their minds and into their thought process. He never threw a spear, never shot an arrow, never waved a sword, but he intimidated them using mind games. Israel was, as many people are today, defeated by cowardice and not conflict. Afraid to confront the issues of their bondage, the real bondage was not the giant, but it was their cowardice or being afraid to confront the issue. Out of an entire army, conditioned and trained for fighting, not one single soldier would step up in a fight. But a shepherd boy named David, whom God was grooming for the throne, happened to be there during the time Goliath came out and taunted Israel that morning. Robert Wilson was one of the most brilliant men of his time. He was a Hebrew professor at Princeton Theological Seminary. One of his students was the great pastor, Dr. John, Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. Twelve years after graduation, Barnhouse went back to Princeton to preach in the chapel. On that occasion, his former professor, Dr. Wilson, sat on the front row to hear him. Now, I can imagine that having to preach in front of the man who taught you how to preach would be just a little bit intimidating. But there he was. Well, Barnhouse preached, and afterwards, Robert Wilson came up, extended his hand, and said to Barnhouse these words, If you come back again, I will not come to hear you preach. I only come once, and I am glad to see that you are a big godder. When my boys come back, I come to see if they are big godders or little godders, and then I know what their ministry will be. Confused, Barnhouse asked him to explain. Dr. Wilson said, Well, some men have a little God, and they're always in trouble with them. He can't do any miracles. He can't take care of the inspiration and transmission of the Scripture. He doesn't intervene on behalf of his people. They have a little God, and so I call them little Godders. Then there are those who have a great God. He speaks, it is done, he commands, and it stands fast. He knows how to show himself strong on behalf of those who fear him. You, Donald, have a great God, and he will bless your ministry. And he paused smiled and said, God bless you, and walked away. So this morning, are you a big godder, or are you a little godder? Do you have in your mind's eye a little god that you'd like to believe in, but he's so small and insignificant that you're always distressed? Or is he a great, big, powerful, unlimited, almighty God? David was a big godder. They said, this guy is too big to fight. Whereas David said, this guy is too big to miss. (laughs) David had a big god. And compared to a big god, all giants lose their power once we understand the power of God. I think Sarah's reaction to the news that she would bear a son in her old age is a good example of this. She knew that both her husband and herself were past the age. So her first reaction was to laugh. But God confronted her about that laugh, not because she had laughed in God's presence, but because her laughter expressed a limiting view of God that was a denial of his power. 
At that point, the Lord said to Abraham, Why does Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a son when I am old? Is anything impossible for the Lord? Sarah laughed at God's promise because she thought it was impossible. And she doubted it was possible because her perception of God was far too small. The same problem of shrunken faith often showed up in the attitudes of many who approached Christ for help. Very few came with a complete understanding of who he was, so their faith was correspondingly weak. A, le- a leper once begged Jesus for help. He said, If only you will, said the man, you can cleanse me. The father of a demon-possessed son pleaded, But if, if it is all possible, take pity upon us and help us. I want you to notice the difference in each of those appeals. The leper saw no problem in trusting in Jesus' power. It was the compassion of Christ that he was unsure of. His appeal could be expressed, I know you could if you would, but you probably won't. Now, the father of the demon-possessed son, on the other hand, was unsure of Christ's power, and it's almost as if he says, I know you would if you could, but you probably can't. It's all in our perception of who God is. Verse 28, please. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was aroused against David, and he said, Why did you come down here? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your pride and the insolence of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. David said, What have I done now? Is there not a cause? And he turned from him toward another and said the same thing, And these people answered him as the first ones did. Eliab accuses David. You just came down here to see the battle. See the battle? What battle? I have to tell you, if I'd have been David, when asked about seeing the battle, I would have said these words. I don't want to split hairs or anything. But in order for this to be considered a battle, technically, at some point, when there ha- wouldn't there have to be some sort of actual physical combat involved for it to be a battle? Just one more reason why God didn't include me in the pages of Holy Writ, as it were. But know this, whenever you st- step out in faith to fight the enemy, there's always going to be somebody there to try and discourage you. And often, sadly, it begins in your own home. David's eldest brother, Eliab, became angry when he heard that David was inquiring about Saul's offer, and so he ridiculed him. He said, we're all soldiers, and you're just a little shepherd boy. A man's foes will be those of his own household, promised Jesus. And that promise was also true in the life of David. It was also true in the life of Joseph, whose brothers hated him, lied about him, and sold him as a slave. Moses was criticized by his own brother and sister, and the Lord's earthly family at one time misunderstood him, opposed his ministry, and thought he had lost his mind. But David didn't allow Eliab's harsh words to discourage him, for he knew that God would help him defeat the giant, which we will look at next week. So here we have some brothers arguing. You know what? Sadly, That is still often the case. Instead of us binding together to fight the common enemy, too often brothers and sisters spend all their time fighting among themselves. 
Churches have actually split over the color of the carpet. Not here, of course, since we have concrete to avoid such problems. I read this week there's a monastery in Germany that has two sets of antlers that are interlocked together, prominently displayed on the inside. What happened was these two bucks got into a fight, and they rammed each other so hard that their antlers locked together in such a way that they were forever stuck that way, and they both starved to death. And so the monks had these mounted over a doorway to remind everyone that if we fight among one another, we too will experience nothing but spiritual death. So David bemoans, what have I done now? I said that a lot growing up. Hence the mean little Billy moniker that was assigned to me. If you're new here, just ask anybody. I'm sure it'll take some kind of perverse delight explaining it to you. Now, earlier we we recall that David's brothers had witnessed this earlier anointing by Samuel in Bethlehem. Now, true, they may not have understood everything that they saw, but in singling the little boy out, it may be well lie behind a sibling rivalry that is reminiscent of Joseph and his brothers. Now, if that is the case, then Eliab's hostility like that of Joseph's brothers is more disturbing than it may seem. Eliab was among the very few who had seen the prophet's anointing of David. If so, his hostility is more than sibling rivalry. It is nothing less than opposition to the one that God has chosen. Eliab had unwittingly taken the side of Goliath here. He even sounded a little bit like Goliath, his accusing, why have you come question, his scornful belittling those few sheep, and his presumed self-importance, I am the one who knows. Now there is irony in the suggestion that Eliab is the one who knows all the evil that is in David's heart, since we know that David was the one that has been chosen by God according to God's own heart. Eliab knew nothing. He was still seen as man sees and can only see a presumptuous young punk who had come down to watch a battle. But in closing, I want us to notice one last thing. Why was David there? What caused him to be positioned by God to be used this way? Well, here it is. He was on an assignment from his father, Jesse. He was sent to carry cheese to his brothers. He is toting cheese around. David was anointed to be king, and yet he was sent right back to the sheep. He should have been in the king's court, we would think, but instead, he is carrying cheese around. That seems like such a menial mission, doesn't it? Carrying cheese. A king-to-be toting cheese. And yet, that's what happened. But listen to what happened because of that. God used David's faithfulness to raise him to another level. We all know that David fought Goliath and killed him, but don't miss this point. He was not there initially to fight a giant. And had David not learned the fruit of faithfulness, he would not have been there. David had learned to tote the cheese. And that tells me that faithfulness is God's avenue for promotion in his kingdom. If you ever hope to kill a giant and to do something great for God, Learn how to be faithful where God has you right now. 
Be faithful there, and God will promote you if it is his will. So if you find yourself right now to the place that doesn't match where you think you could be, or where God said that you would be, do not miss the lesson of that place. God has a purpose for all of his delays. He wants us all to develop the fruit of faithfulness. He wants us to learn to tote the cheese, as it were. I remind us one last time, God is the God of the unexpected. What he was doing in the Valley of Elah was the beginning of a sequence of events that can be traced back through biblical record over about ten centuries. It came to the climax when the descendant of David appeared speaking words more provocative and apparently presumptuous than anything David would ever say. Those who knew him best or thought they did from his own hometown said, Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all of his sisters with us now? Where did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. Now, it may be an understandable mistake. It is a great mistake, nonetheless, to take offense at the unexpected ways of God. We would think that Jesus, the teacher of parables, the healer of the sick, who is executed for blasphemy, is the king who saves and would rule the world. It seems just as unlikely that a boy from Bethlehem could do anything for these people who are facing Goliath. But again, to trust God, you must be prepared for the unexpected. And Father, that is where we want to be this morning. We want to be where you want us to be. We want to walk in your spirit that we don't fulfill the lust of the flesh. I pray you would do something fresh and new in every heart here this morning. Draw us to yourself, Lord, and show us what you would have us to do. For we are listening. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Ask Dave and James to come up, please.